missing person. A missing person report has been filed with Warren Police. Missing is Damien Mark Sharp, 22, 19 Cedar Street. He was last seen on May 18th and has black hair, hazel eyes, and a muscular build. He wears black nail polish and has a cross tattoo on his chest and changes his hair color often. He's a non-driver. Anyone with information is asked to call police at 723-2700. From your daily local and Two Moms Media and Warren, PA, this is Smoke, the Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. So you wake up to that blotter item on a Friday morning. Between a broken water line at the bank and a DUI, do you stop to read it? More than likely, yes. I've worked at a small newspaper, and I know what you maniacs are there for. Blotter, obituaries, letters to the editor. I admit, as much as I hated writing Blotter, I loved reading it as much as I despised also reading it. It's probably one of the richest sections of your local newspaper, story-wise. On this page, for example, ten mini-stories. There's one about the broken water line, one about a hit-and-run, one about a PFA, or protection from abuse violation. That's when your significant other can't come to your house because you got a judge to say so, and then sometimes they come over anyway, and sometimes that's because the person who filed the order invited them over to work it out, and then they still can't get along, and then the person with the PFA on them gets arrested for coming over. Weird games, man. People play weird games. There are also two stories on burglaries, one on a theft, one harassment tale. That's like a whole week's quota, you guys. Did you know that? Many newspapers these days hold vague standards over reporters like two to three bylines a day or you're toast, kid. I don't know why I read that like a 1920s radio announcer, except yes, I do. Everything that comes out of an editor or publisher's mouth sounds to me like a 1920s radio announcer. I can't control it and I can't explain it. I'm just letting you know. According to Pennsylvania's Unified Crime Reporting System, in 2002, the City of Warren Police dealt with zero murders, zero manslaughters, one rape, one robbery, seven aggravated assaults, 28 simple assaults, 38 burglaries, 103 thefts, three motor vehicle thefts, and one arson case. Out of 188 crimes charged that year, the agency cleared 65. And that's compared with 96 clearances out of 233 crimes in 2001, a difference of about 22.32%. I don't math good, so I'm not going to try and interpret these numbers. It's not really the focus of the episode anyhow, but I want you to have a sort of aerial view of what police were seeing regularly in the year before and in the year of Damien's case. So when I look at the newspapers of that time, the blotter reflects these numbers. One of the first places I went to reflect 2002 then was the newspaper. Of all the research I was doing, I was most curious when it came to Damien's case, what people were told to believe about his disappearance from the beginning. Rumors and urban legends, like the story of what might have happened to Damien, crop up worst when people are left to explain the unexplainable on their own. In society, we look to our leaders for answers to mysteries. The authorities, when it comes to any kind of information, we tend to believe, are our newspapers, our governments, and our police. So what did police tell the newspaper about Damien in 2002? Not a lot at first. 
In fact, a lot of what appeared in that first blotter item isn't fully accurate. So Damien was 22, and he did live at 19 Cedar Street, and as we've aggressively established already, his name was Damien Mark Sharp. But he wasn't last seen on May 18th. May 18th is when Damien last spoke with his mother, Janine. So he had black hair in his driver's license photo, and we know the black nail polish is accurate from Sky Hill's memory in our first episode. Remember how he sat on the curb and painted her son's nails for him? The large black cross tattoo on his chest is a mistake, but not a full one. It was actually an onk. The Egyptian symbol of life looks like a cross, but with a teardrop-shaped loop at the top. I don't think it was accurate at the time to say he changes his hair color often, because it was always either longer and black or buzzed and blonde as hell. I don't even know what a non-driver actually is. Damien had a car, but it wasn't working, and he had a license to drive it or any other cars he could gain legal access to. He was a non-driver right at the very minute he went missing because he couldn't physically drive with his banged-up knee, but as far as being a non-driver any other time... I guess my question would be, why is that relevant? Okay, it makes sense if he's a non-driver. I guess that means he's not likely to have packed his crap up and headed for California or anything. But still. So much of this blotter item makes my face do weird things. To express confusion and consternation. Mainly because I'm not sure what I would have done with this blotter item between 2015 and 2018 when there was a good chance I'd be the one typing it up. I know for a fact I'd have at least called a couple of cop friends to ask what the hell was even going on, to find out what the story was, because the only thing this blotter item really says to me is that there's one hell of a story behind these six lines. So here's how your blotter comes to be every morning. Law enforcement sends reports to the editorial desk, sometimes still via fax, which blows my mind to this day. Each day and into that evening, the reports are gathered into a file, and then that night, when the night reporter comes in, they look through the reports and type them up into the standard blotter format you're used to seeing. Traffic reports are the worst. It's all. Vehicle 1 spun in a counterclockwise direction 343 times before coming to final rest facing north-south-east-northwest at a 1,000-degree angle. What? And we have to turn that into somebody hit a deer without changing the police's actual words because if we don't attribute the hell out of everything in the blotter, someone could sue us, and that's every newspaper's greatest fear in the whole world. That and having to run a correction. Because there's a sickness inherent in traditional journalism, wherein we've come to believe we're supposed to know everything as reporters, and if we know something wrong or tell it wrong, we're bad, bad. We're also expected to rush to every accident, every fire. We're supposed to get everything right immediately the first time. That's an exaggeration, but... I feel like it's come to a point with traditional journalism where people expect reporters to know everything off the tops of their heads and also ask questions as if they know nothing, because the people who want to read the stories don't know anything about the topic, and that's why the stories. Look, reporters are human and so are cops, but the point is, I'm trying to put myself in this episode into both the law enforcement and the reporter headspace as I start to really examine the coverage of Damien's disappearance. And... 
I don't really get why it needed to be featured so heavily that he paints his nails and dyes his hair without even a single mention of the fact that he'd served his country in Bosnia. That may be a harsh criticism, but I stand behind it. If I'm sending the newspaper information on a person I want to find, I'm going to make sure people know what he looks like, sure, but more than what he looked like, I'm going to let them know who he was. This blotter item instead reads to me like, there's a weird dude out there unaccounted for, look out, than it does, please help us find this human being. And that has nothing to do with the person who wrote it. Like I said, your blotter comes directly from police officers, and we don't change a whole lot. In any case, the date alone tells us one thing. No one at the Times Observer got this information before Thursday, June 6th. Blotter gets written every night, and items don't get held. They either make the cut or they don't, but they don't get held back for the next night's blotter. So that's 13 days after Damien went missing, and 6 from when Dana and Janine showed up at the department. Timelines, when you're trying to puzzle out exactly how something went down, are invaluable. I was curious, as I went into this story, how information was disseminated to the public, We've talked at length about why rumors are a problem in cases like this, but without a strong narrative delivered straight to the vein, the newspaper being the syringe in this metaphor, people will start making meaning out of chaos all on their own. It's why we all believed that thunder was angels bowling and stuff when we were kids. We looked to those who'd established themselves as authorities for answers, and they messed with us. I'm not judging them either. My kids thought the United Refinery was the International Space Station for like a year and a half because I told them it was. Because I'm a jerk. Look, a small cross-section of people probably read this blotter item, but it wouldn't be until Tuesday, June 11th, that an interview with Damien's family was presented in what's known in the newsroom as a feature story. This feature looks to be about 20 column inches to me. A standard feature runs about that, and a major feature could run 40 to 60 column inches, depending on your editor, and space. So we know that Damien's story was prioritized as news on June 11th, but at that point there still wasn't a ton official to say. I reached out to Jude Dippold, who was the editor of the Times Observer in 2002, and Vicki Barone, who wrote the lion's share of stories about Damien until she left the newspaper in 2007. Neither could recall a ton about coverage of the case, though both recalled it happening. I was able to sit down with Vicky this past winter to hear a little more about what she recalled, and her interview was short and the audio was rough in it. I was still learning what I could do with different equipment, and I overestimated what I brought with me for the environment I chose. But Vicky told me in that interview that she was given the story by her editor, and Jude confirms. That first story was written by Ellen Cranick, but again, a blotter item to feature sounds to me like the paper was just deciding if it was covering the story as news or waiting for it to blow over. In all actuality, if they didn't get anything from the police on it, it was unlikely that they were just going to reach out to the family, based on a blotter item. And that's speculation on my part, but having worked in several newsrooms, I'm confident in that guess. Vicky said she didn't remember something coming over the scanner or anything like that. It didn't go down like a fire or a car accident, which reporters would hear on a scanner running in every newsroom just for that purpose until either the sports guys turn it down at night and someone forgets to turn it back up for a day or two and you miss a fire or accident and everyone gets in a little trouble, or your county switches to a radio system that cuts you out of the scanner awareness network altogether. Anyhow, Vicky said, it wasn't like that. And really, Vicky didn't get the story until the second piece on the reservoir searches. The first piece on those searches ran Friday, June 21st. 
That's nearly a month after Damien went missing, but three weeks after it was reported to police. In that first piece, T.O. City Editor Eric Paddock wrote that divers, specialized search dogs, dozens of volunteers searched the waters Thursday, that's June 20th, beneath two bridges on the Allegheny Reservoir for signs of a Warren man last heard from on May 25th. Crews from as far away as West Virginia, Paddock wrote, as well as a number of state and local law enforcement agencies, started searching the reservoir that Thursday morning, working through the evening. Warren County District Attorney Richard Hernan said Thursday, Paddock wrote on, the search was conducted as a result of some information that had been received. He declined, Paddock wrote, to say what kind of information prompted that search, except that authorities were informed that the area in the vicinity of those bridges would be a good place to look. Crews also had conducted land searches over that weekend, the article tells us, and it also provides a list of involved agencies. They were Warren County Sheriff's Department, Warren County Sheriff's Department Dive Team, Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Pleasant and Glade Township Fire Departments, Transcare, the DART Dive Team from Corydon Township and McCain County, Pennsylvania Game Commission, the American Red Cross, Twin Tiers Dive Team, Corn Planner Canine Team, the Canine Assisted Emergency Search and Rescue Team from West Virginia, and the Warren County District Attorney's Office. The Pennsylvania Dive and Recovery Team from Elk County and Kinzu Wolf Run Marina assisted in these efforts, Paddock wrote. It's a function of following down leads. We obviously wouldn't put this many people to this much work without some basis, Hernan is quoted as saying, adding that because of the concern for his family and friends, we are involved in trying to locate him. Hernan also told Paddock at that time that 12 dogs and several handlers were involved in both land and water searches during this initial volley of activity on the case. And he said that the office's, quote, happiest news would be that Damien will call his mom and say, I'll be home. But short of that, we're doing our best to try to find him, end quote. Janine told the paper at that time that Damien's clothes and wallet were still in his apartment when they initially went there. But recall from episode two that Dana said she and Stacy went to the apartment, later going to get Janine and sell her on New York. One detail that keeps running through the coverage, from the first small feature by Ellen Cranick, to the first Reservoir piece by Paddock, and now the second Reservoir piece on Saturday, June 22nd by Vicki Barone, and it's a key. It's not a metaphor. It's literally a key. This key to Damien's Cedar Street apartment showed up in my interviews with the guys who saw Damien that afternoon of his disappearance. The person who gave Damien that $900 and an order for a pound of weed said that he was given a key to Damien's apartment as a sort of collateral. I won't rip you off. Here's a key to my place. Go wait for me there, and I'll be back with your pound of weed. That was the basic arrangement, this person told us. And he then did just that, he said. He walked from Water Street over to Damien's apartment, about a 10 to 15 minute walk through downtown Warren, and waited for him there until it got late, he said. Eventually, his sister came to pick him up. The friend who drove Damien to Prospect Street was there too, this person told us. And Stephen confirmed to us last fall that he himself shooed the two away later that night, around 10 or 11, when it became apparent that Damien's plan to meet them all back at the apartment for a party had changed somehow along the way. That entire week, between Saturday, May 25th and Saturday, June 3rd, when Janine and Dana finally went to the police department to report Damien missing, that apartment would have been accessible to whoever had that key. And that matters because a contention between law enforcement and the family has been the state of that apartment. Law enforcement alleges that the apartment was cleaned before they got there, 
and anything of potential evidentiary value have been removed since they say they found nothing. Janine said in the newspaper that they used Stephen's key to get into the apartment before going to the police. Again, I remember talking to Dana and she said that it was her and Stacy who went to the apartment. Then Dana went to get Janine to make the report. Either way, Dana said, when they went to the apartment, it wasn't cleaned up by any means. So that Friday, May 24th, Damien had a party at the house. Everyone was drinking until late at night, and his best friend Dave told us the next morning whoever was still there went for a high ride with Danica. Dana said the apartment looked like they just got done partying in it, but a week ago. It was a whole week before Dana even got word that Damien was missing, she said. Within that week, whoever had that key would have had access to the apartment, and we know that a key was turned in to police by someone, but so far I haven't been able to find out who turned it in or when or under what circumstances. To me, and this is my own speculative opinion, that apartment may have had items of evidentiary value removed from it. That doesn't mean that the family cleaned it up. Somebody had a key for a week. Also, the fact that Damien's wallet was there doesn't jive with that statement from the person who said they saw him later than James on May 25th. Brianna was a cashier at Bilo, a supermarket in downtown Warren. She worked third shift on Saturday night, and she recalls encountering Damien at some point, she says, between 11 p.m. Saturday night and 1 a.m. on Sunday morning. Here's Brianna to give you that situation. Yeah, well, my shift started at 11. Okay. So it would have been, okay. you know, like 1, maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, okay. somewhere in there. Did he look like he had been in a fight at all, even if it was like a week prior? Did he look like he was healing up from anything other than the knee? I don't think. Not that I remember. Was he joking around with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really joking around, but like he saw I was reading uh, a photos, and he saw that, and we were chatting and everything else about the book, about yeah. other books that we liked, yeah. and everything. And I'm like, yeah. oh, it was the most I'd ever talked. I'm like, and that's and then I that was not I found out he was actually really nice. He's like, oh, I'm out of town for the weekend for for Memorial Day so and I just didn't I'm like oh, did you see where he was going here? like did he, no. say, did he say he was going camping or he just said out of town he just said I, he might have said he was going camping he yeah. might have said he was going to a party um what you said he thought he was wearing his camo pants yeah I think so did you notice at all if he was wearing like what kind of footwear no didn't notice that um I know generally, like, when I saw him, he was always wearing boots. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, probably his military boots. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I would imagine he was probably wearing that, yeah. you know. When you saw him after he got back, he would have gotten back at the end of 2001, like, wintertime. Like, when you saw him after that, if you did, like, did you ever notice if he was wearing dog tags? No. No? Okay. I never noticed if he was wearing dog tags. Yeah. Um... He, yeah, he was wearing, I do believe he was wearing his camo pants. Okay. So black, like black or maybe yeah. he blue with a dark t-shirt. Jacket or anything? I don't think he okay. was wearing a jacket, but I think he had one with him. Like okay. he had his backpack, I think. And he had his jacket over the jacket backpack? Jacket over the, Okay. Yeah. Hat or anything like that? You know, I don't think he okay. was. And what about, does any jewelry stand out at all? No, don't think. This is fascinating. I mean, unless you think that there's any reason to think that there might have been, it might have been a Friday or a Sunday, would it? Would you have worked third on Sunday? Or do you think it was Saturday? No, because Friday, I do remember Friday, 
that particular Friday, I did not work at all because I had been working down at Perkins. I was working a weird shift because yeah. again, the holiday. Yeah. When I was younger, about you know sixteen, so you yeah. want to go in and see, but you couldn't see like any lights turn on or it didn't. You didn't hear like some their no. music. No, I think because I remember this. Um, the windows like at the register. We're over in the part where they have the gas station yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. So it overlooked just that part. From, from what I saw, and I was thinking about this, and I think what he did was when he left my register, okay. he went out into the lobby. The main lobby. Yeah. And they have the two sets of doors. Yes. They have the one on this side and yeah. the one on the far side. Yeah. I do believe, thinking about it, he went out the far side door. So out towards the out towards, car wash end. Yes. So he was headed out, probably back to his house or something. Might have been. Well, I mean, his house, was he on, he was walking on crutches. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't know that he was on foot. He might have gotten into a car. They might have over there. Car That's why you wouldn't have seen the lights. Yeah, they parked over there. So did he have like a bag of stuff? Did he have? He had a bag of I think he had a bag because I think he got like cigarettes, a lighter, and it wasn't much. It was just, you know. Are you things. sure, sure on the cigarettes? I'm just curious because it might be. I'm not sure, okay. sure, but. Could it, could it maybe have been a pack of blunts? Might have been. Okay, it might have been something like that from the tobacco. Something, yeah, it was something okay. like that. Yeah, he walked out the far end. And that's kind of it, right? He just kind of disappears yeah. out that door. And that's out that door. And yeah, like, I remember him saying that he was out of town, and I told him, oh, we'll see when you get back. Mm-hmm. That night, his gait, his, um, like, ability to navigate a curb, his ability to navigate a set of stairs, what would you estimate that to have been? So the stairs would have been a difficulty because he was walking with at least one crutch. One. You can't say both for sure because that's I also important. I can't say both okay. for sure. Okay. Because the more I think about it, it's like he had his backpack and everything. I remember he took his backpack off. I think he was trying to put a few things in his backpack when he bought them. Like, I don't know if he left with a bag. Yeah, yeah. Or if he stuck his shit in his backpack. We're not sure when or how Damien's wallet would have wound back up in the apartment, and Brianna doesn't specifically remember him having a wallet, but if the rumors have any truth to them, he was carrying some money around with him, and he definitely bought a few things at the store, so it would stand to reason he'd have his wallet with him, wouldn't it? And that's just another piece of the mystery we have yet to puzzle out. I asked Dana about this issue police had with the situation, though about their allegation that the apartment had been cleaned in an effort to conceal something related to Damien's potential criminal activity in the days leading up to his disappearance. Dana said the apartment was messy, and after they made the report, she and Janine took the police there, and they were then told that they could take what they wanted out of it. It was simply a matter of rent was about due and Damien didn't appear to be coming back, and the family had to figure out where to put his stuff, she said. They did just that. Case closed according to Dana. That's a conflict that remains unresolved in this story. Whether the apartment was cleaned or not, I just can't come up with an answer. But based on Dana's statement, coupled with the fact that I know that key was rolling around in town for about a week, doesn't necessarily have to have been family that cleaned it, if it was in fact cleaned. I also understand how it would seem inexplicable to current law enforcement that law enforcement at the time would have told the family to pack the apartment up. I mean, 
shrug emoji, guys. I have nothing to add here, unfortunately. It's a conundrum. Either way, the newspaper coverage through the rest of 2002 included two pieces in July, two in October, and then Damien's name didn't show back up in the pages of the TO until May 3rd, 2003, an anniversary piece. Two of those five initial pieces are written by Vicky. One is by Ellen, and the other two ran without bylines, so they likely came in from statements provided by family or police and ran largely as they were sent without interviews conducted. Those staff report pieces are pretty much the same as Blotter, just longer. When I started this project, I didn't plan to do much more than some research and maybe a remote interview with a dog handler on cadaver dogs. I figured I'd tell you when the dogs went out over the years as the paper reported it. I figured I'd get shut down when I asked the police if any other dog searches had been conducted aside from those that appeared in the newspaper. I certainly never expected to be participating in a pre-search briefing with dog handlers and law enforcement last Sunday. And yet, there I was last Sunday doing just that. I'll tell you all about it after a quick break. Damien's case remains open with the City of Warren Police Department. Journalists can do a lot in these situations, but police have more resources than we can dream of. Detective Tiffany Dyke is the criminal investigator heading Damien's case up, and she's ready to hear from you. She told me. Call Tiffany at 814-723-2700 or email her at tdyke at police.cityofwarrenpa.gov. If you're scared of cops, fine. Be that way. Call Warren County Crime Stoppers instead. And if your information helps lead Tiffany to remains, Crime Stoppers is going to give you two grand. So, that'd be cool, yeah? Third option is, and will remain until Damien's found, Stacy at Two Moms Media. Message her on Facebook at Let's Find Damien. Until early this spring, my initial theory, I'm going to be honest, was that Damien went to that apartment on Prospect and he and James did a little sparring maybe. Damien got hurt. James had a big problem on his hands. And I had to come up with something. You go ahead and try and solve a mystery without theorizing about what might have happened and then testing your theories to see if they hold water. Let me know how that goes for you. And it was a decent first shot. I'm not ashamed of it. I shot it off to the chief of police, feeling pretty cool, because look at me go, right? This ain't hard. I'm sure it was a cute story, sis, kind of moment, which is fine, because that's what it is for me now, too. This entire project has been pretty out of the box, as Joe Spraveri, the city of Warren PD's police chief, has described it to people. Relationships between law enforcement and the media are traditionally prickly, and for good reason. The function of a free press is to hold public officials and institutions to a standard by asking questions, observing its operations, and then reporting on those operations to the public. The goal isn't to be a bully, but it is to basically be kind of like mom. We like to keep an eye on things, make sure everything's running the way it should, according to the rules we've all set forth, and if it's off track, we like to talk about it over mimosas with mom friends every morning. 
I'm just kidding. Mimosas aren't involved in journalism because if they were, it would be so much easier to pack the rapidly emptying newsrooms nationwide. Promise you that. When our public officials do cool things, I can say at least for myself, I love to tell people cool things. When they're off track, it's my job to let people know that too. I don't get to decide, I just report in a traditional newsroom. And in a traditional newsroom, I also can't be a part of my story. Which is okay. But there's an entire branch of journalism that rests on the concept of being a participant as well as an observer. And if you're into alternative ways of doing things and the wanton disruption of entire time-worn industries, I highly recommend you check out Hunter Thompson. Also, if you're going to try to bond with me over Hunter Thompson, I suggest you learn at least a few titles other than Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And read the book, don't just watch the movie, because if you don't, then please, please move along, my darling. I am not the droid you're looking for. Anyhow, the point is this. When I reached out to the police department last fall, they invited Brian and I in, I think probably at first, just out of sheer curiosity. Right-handed God, you guys, the first time I dropped off a letter for Joe Spravery at the police department, and they asked me what it was in regards to, and I had to say the name, Damien Sharp in that cavernous stone entryway, felt a little chill run down my spine. I sent Joe a one-sheet about the project last August that basically ended with, please call me so I can journalist all the way, not have to say things like numerous attempts to discuss the case that the City of Warren Police Department were unsuccessful. I hate saying I couldn't get someone to talk to me, more than I hate admitting I was wrong. It was pretty rad, sitting in the fancy chairs at the city council table that day, discussing Damien Sharp with people who actually for sure knew things about Damien Sharp. I chose Phil Gilbert's chair, and it's tainted now. So you're welcome, Phil. Anyhow, once people did start talking to me, I was able to go to that meeting with my homework done. And I just want to thank everyone again who spoke with me prior to last August, leading up to that meeting, because it's thanks to you that Joe took me seriously at all. And he told me that himself. Um, the, the, the things that you from day one knew just from talking to people that we have known and were able to basically cooperate one another. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was, I don't know how to explain it, but that first meeting I walked out of there thinking, okay, she's legit. She's Thank a real you. deal. She has my trust. And, you know, we've opened up some things that you've seen that no other civilian has seen. And, and, and that's why we're here today. I mean, Maybe maybe this will go somewhere. Maybe we'll be able to find them. That would be awesome. Um, that it's, would be... It, it's, it's hard at this day and age for me to be optimistic, but I'll, I'll say that I'm cautiously optimistic only because that I've felt we've been so close so many times, and then it's just the, the carpet gets pulled out from under you. Yeah. It's just there's so many bumps in the road and so many forks and dead ends. and You just learn not to even accept it as a reality. You can't, you until you can't get your hopes up. Yeah. And, and sooner or later, more than likely, you know, somebody somewhere is going gonna, is gonna to find them. It, it, it's going to happen at some point, whether it's, you know, a month from now, a year from now, or 10 years from now. It's, you know, I, I, I hope it's while I'm still here. Dana said the same thing. And I don't play you that clip to say, look how rad I am at journalism. I play you that clip because it wasn't just Joe blowing smoke. He was giving me a primer ahead of this past Sunday, a primer on how law enforcement handles their own expectations. 
when some damn good-looking information has motivated a pretty significant response on their end. Which they themselves were doing when I sat down with Joe for this quick pre-launch interview. I was at the station that day to get that interview, and one with Detective Tiffany Dyke, who I actually made a little feature piece separate from the podcast for, that will run alongside today's episode. I was also there, though, to go over some planning for a dog search at the Devil's Elbow and Jake's Rocks Recreation Area. Like, a new one. One I'd been able to work with Joe to organize by using some of the stuff he mentioned in that clip. Evidence that other civilians haven't seen, that the department made available to me in my investigation based on the fact that I showed up there already knowing more than I was supposed to know as just some crazy lady with a mic, right? So the search was conducted on Sunday, May 29th, and it happened because I was able to take that evidence that the department shared with me and combine it with previously unknown information, stuff you guys have given me, and create a new theory. A better theory than my early sparring accident theory. One that got more than a good story sis out of Joe. I reached out earlier this year to former District Attorney Rick Hernan, asking if he could elaborate now on that information that he wouldn't elaborate on in 2002. The information that led all those people out to the Devil's Elbow Bridge. He wasn't able to remember much from the case he said, and he didn't have notes to refer to. Whenever I hear information that people will refer to but not elaborate on, I tend to dig my heels in pretty instinctively. So that started me thinking, what could have motivated 12 dogs, multiple divers, the Red Cross, and multiple law enforcement agencies throughout the region from as far away as West Virginia? Geez, all it took was some information? took some good information, I can promise you that right now. Because earlier this spring, as I dug deeper into my resources and started asking more and more people about that area, I was able to compile 1.5 notebooks full of handwritten information from over a dozen sources close to the original investigation, close to Damien, and close to his family. I ran Devil's Elbow through a damn informational meat grinder, and then I took all of that and I mixed it with those two statements I had from evidence, and then... I spent about three days just making maps and visual aids to drive the main points of my theory home because anxiety. Swear to God, you guys, I'm going to blow that presentation up on a chunk of poster board and keep it forever in a place of honor in my living room or something just because of how hard I worked on it. I don't think I've ever in my life worked so hard on making another concept tangible except maybe this podcast itself, which, by the way, is completely out of hand and I love it. Basically, it took me three months, more hours than I can even begin to quantify, and an entire team of independent, anonymous experts and sources willing to trust me and my process enough to throw what they had into my crazy pot. Finally, presenting that theory to Joe, it was still another month before we could round up the dogs to check that area again, based on the new understanding of old evidence. The process consumed my entire life, every waking moment for three months, give or take. I hear from a lot of people that they've gone to the police with information on Damien and they walk away whether anything was ever done about it. I've asked a few people what their metric for that would be, and and most of them say they need a large-scale effort, a visible effort, like the one made this weekend, which, by the way, you guys, never went public. It's not even on scanning Warren County right now as a hypothetical question from someone using the bike trails this weekend. No one talked about it at all. So did it happen? Did you know that the same area was searched by dogs in 2003? Because it was in the spring of 2003. 
a year after Damien went missing, and not a word about it in the paper, and I'll bet you weren't aware of that either. But it happened. I used it in the theory that got Sunday's dog search done. Listen, I'm not an apologist for the police. I have opinions on how I think the investigation was handled in the beginning, but I'm going to tell you right now that for almost the past year, this department has done nothing but humor me. At first, maybe just for their own entertainment, but over the course of this year, I've managed to develop, I think, a good working relationship that's allowed both of us to enhance what we know about Damien's case exponentially. And that's not something I ever would have expected. I thought maybe, maybe they'll tell me a few things in one meeting, and if I'm lucky, I'll get someone from the department on tape. I never expected to co-create a theory and test it out with them. But I think it's important for you to know that my experience with the department has been positive and active from the beginning. And I also want you to understand that that's because I spent months researching the case before I ever even reached out to them, so I'd be ready if they actually responded to me. I don't think it's fair to assume that information that's been given to the police hasn't been followed up on. But also, I can't ask Joe Spraveri whether Chief Ray Zadonik followed up on everything 10 years ago. And I could ask Ray that, but really, at this point, I could go around to every single member of law enforcement and probably get a completely different answer to that question. Just like I could go around to any one of you listening and get the same. I think what was done on that case was done based on the personalities, experiences, and worldviews of the people who are making decisions on that case. But I've also seen with my own eyes that things have been done. That 2003 dog search, it was done. It wasn't reported on. Still, it was done. And I've also experienced, right along with Joe and the rest of law enforcement, who was there last Sunday, the letdown of thinking we might actually have something worth a shit for once on this case and then being told, eh, not today. So here's the big news. Nothing was found in Sunday's search. There is no news on where Damien is. We did not find him up there that day. I learned a ton of things from the experience, but probably the strongest lesson was the one in my guts as the day drug on and on with no confirmable indications from dogs to speak of. And it's no joke. I saw law enforcement hopefully assemble at 8.30 Sunday morning, as I did. I saw them work really hard, crawling through inch after inch of mountain laurel at Jake's Rocks, following a dog they hoped would smell something worth digging up, as I did. I watched them sweat as I was sweating. I watched them deflate as I deflated a little more with each hour that passed. And I can't imagine what that must feel like to a police officer who's motivated as hell year after year. And it's one thing to hear Tony talk about that experience, but it hits a whole other way after you've been through it once. Actually invested in a theory, invested in trying to get the resources together, and invested as hell in the outcome. And I expected we would find nothing. But I'm also 100% sure that I'm basically a puppy compared with law enforcement because I got told no on Sunday by every single dog I encountered, and I still spent an extra four hours digging around in the laurel after that. I do have my moments. If you know, you know. But I'm actually harder to fully deflate than a lot of people, so you can't use me as a unit of measure on that. But I know this. Without you folks talking to me and telling me the things that I took to the police, and without a chief who is willing to throw the box in the damn fire and think entirely outside of it on all aspects of this project, Sunday wouldn't have happened. 
It took a community to make that happen after 20 years. And I know to law enforcement, it's deflating as hell. But for me, I feel like somebody just blew a great big old bonfire out of a little teeny tiny spark that it took every single one of us to create. And I don't feel shitty at all about how Sunday went. It was so unlikely that we'd find anything. And that was one of the first warnings I've heard since talk of the search began. And even Luann Gaddy, Northwestern Pennsylvania Canine Search and Rescue, who Joe invited for the day, warned of it. And as everyone walked away from the search, happy that it had been done, but of course bummed that it had yielded nothing. And I, like a crazy person, headed back up that hill for one last quick check of one final spot. I was getting a taste of what it's like for law enforcement to get that badass theory together to motivate the resources to help you out and then just to debunk the theory you grew like a baby in your brain for months. I interviewed Joe after the search on that specific topic. So the experience of getting wound up, getting all the resources out, getting out here for an event where you're really hoping and you're cautiously optimistic, like you said, and then to be let down, what is that like for law enforcement? Over the course of 20 years, what does it do to morale? It's tough. I mean, I guess I don't really know how to put words into it, but it is. It's, it's a buildup, and you get excited, and you get optimistic, and then it's kind of like the carpet being yanked out from under you. Maybe like when you were a kid and you would look through the thick Sears catalog and circle everything you wanted for Christmas and, and Christmas morning, you know, you, you might not have got everything you circled. I, I, don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but mm -hmm. it's, it's getting blown up and then getting deflated. Mm -hmm. But you have to be able to take some positives away from it. Mm -hmm. um, you can't give up looking because of all the times you've been let down. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah. And what kinds of information for you rises to the level of putting this much effort out? Um, what would you need from somebody, like from the public? If the, if the public are like, well, I have this information, I don't know if it's any good. And then, you know, one of the things that I hear is that they come in and they make a statement and they feel like there wasn't a response. But what kind of, what kind, how much do you need to motivate something like what I think the expectation is, which I think is out of proportion yeah, we we follow up on everything mm -hmm. obviously we're here now but to to get a larger scale response mm -hmm. um, it's a matter of several different circumstances and on a response like this today where we can semi cooperate two different versions that semi point to the same mm -hmm. location then we you know we have to do our due diligence mm -hmm. But just because somebody has given information and they haven't heard back doesn't mean that that wasn't followed up on. You know, today, for example, we can't have everybody and their brother <laughs> up here, um, you know, gawking or showing up and getting in the way of the, you know, trained canine professionals. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, what do you guys do to, to combat the letdowns? Just keep moving. It's part of it. Just, it's just part of the gig, right? So the sun will come up tomorrow. Yep, yep. All right, cool, cool. Just for a little bit of context, four dogs trained in human remains detection and their handlers actively searched about four acres of land at Devil's Elbow and Jake's Rocks on Sunday, May 29th, 2022. Northwest Pennsylvania Canine Search and Rescue provided the service 
and were invited by the City of Warren Police Department for the reasons laid out above. And here's the deal. You can't just call these guys and say, hey, come sniff the ground over here for a minute. Like many search and rescue organizations, Northwest Pennsylvania Canine Search and Rescue can only be called in to provide services by public safety agencies like police, fire departments, or other groups that provide services in times of disaster or crisis. They serve primarily Crawford, Erie, Forest, Mercer, Warren, and Venango counties. Here's Luann, the team's president, group training officer, and membership coordinator, with a little bit more information. So we are Northwest PA Canine Search and Rescue. We're an all-volunteer nonprofit organization that covers Erie, Crawford, Warren, Venango, Forest, and Mercer counties here in Northwest PA. Uh, as I said, we're all volunteer, and we uh, search for lost or missing people. Uh, we don't do felony searches or criminal searches, those types of things. Mm -hmm. So primarily, you know, lost or missing people. Um, we are dispatched through Crawford County 911 Center and uh, have to be called out by law enforcement or emergency personnel. Uh, and so we are generally called by the Pennsylvania State Police in the event that somebody is is missing or, or potentially lost. That's the majority of calls that you get is like missing people who have been out hunting or using the forest. Yeah, usually uh, we get calls, uh, a lot of despondent calls for people who potentially want to hurt themselves mm -hmm. uh, and also quite a few like dementia patients, those types of things who have wandered away from their home uh, and are now potentially lost. Um, we get every now and again, you know, hunters, you know, uh, but for the most part, generally, like more so the uh, Alzheimer's patients, uh, every now and again, the runaway teen yeah. kind of thing. But how many searches have you done yourself? Uh, my, myself? Mm -hmm. uh, I've been doing this for over 16 years. Oh, wow. so, so a lot. You can't quantify it. <laughs> so, so a lot. Uh, a handful. A handful. Probably over 100 <laughs> would be my guess, which about uh, uh, 15 to 20 calls a year okay. uh, so um, you know we like I said we're all volunteers so as far as who's available when when we get calls mm -hmm. that kind of thing um, but we currently have 30 members of our team um, about 11 of them are auxiliary members so they don't actually come out on searches but they help with PR fundraising those types of things and then the rest of us are considered search responders um, we currently have uh, I believe 13 dogs and nine, 10 handlers. Um, and then we also have about eight or so uh, search responders that don't have dogs um, that come out and uh, are able to help search as well. That's right, and you're all volunteers. We're what, all volunteer, yeah. what made you want to do it? What? Um, I guess, well, actually my husband uh, was interested originally uh, and we ended up getting a German Shepherd that uh, we wanted to do something with and happened to, uh, he happened to run into somebody who did it and he got their business card and we went out to a couple trainings and, and 16 years later, loved it, right? <laughs> we're still here. Yeah. So. so tell me a little bit about how the dogs work. So like human remains detection dogs are different from search and rescue dogs. and So they still fall under that realm of search and rescue. It's just a matter of what you're looking for. Uh, the biggest difference uh, as far as live find dogs and human remains detection dogs is that um, every human has their own scent mm -hmm. versus human remains all pretty much smell the same so with the body decomposition and the vo2s and, and all the gases and things that come off of it that all pretty much smells the same so um 
you're training that dog then to recognize that scent and then teaching them then to be able to generalize that to any area that you go to. Um, it generally takes roughly two years for a team to get to the point that they're ready to start thinking about certifying. Um, the dogs, you know, usually know what they're doing. It's the handlers, <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to remember, a lot of things that you need to look for. Reading the dog's body language is huge, especially yeah. with the human remains detection kind of end of thing. Yeah. What kinds of things have you resolved? Have you helped to resolve any cold cases or is it, has it been mostly search and rescue for you guys? Most of our cars, uh, calls yeah. are search and rescue related okay. as far as, you know, missing people. Uh, we have been involved in a couple uh, homicide investigations and cold cases over the years um, but primarily you yeah. know it's more the wilderness search you know somebody's missing and uh, they call us within you know a couple of hours and mm. we go out and find them and you know hopefully they're found alive yeah. you know yeah. so and so you guys need to wait for law enforcement or first responders to invite you uh, as far as the reason behind being called by emergency personnel uh, a couple of different reasons one being liability uh, we do have insurance you know but we want to make sure that we're you know under the guise of some sort of jurisdiction because we don't have you know law enforcement jurisdiction or anything like that to go out and say we're going to do that uh, another part of it is there might be a reason why we're not being called mm -hmm. they might have insider information that you know they don't want other people there because of X, Y, or Z. So we don't want to potentially go in and compromise a situation because of that. Uh, or we don't know necessarily the circumstances behind it then either. You know, uh, the family calls us in, you know, and we find out later that something, you know, they were involved with something, then, you know, that could potentially hurt our, our team as far as that liability. So we always make sure that, uh, like whenever you contacted me, I let let you know that you know if, if there's law enforcement involved and you want us to come out and if a dog indicates mm -hmm. for human remains, say mm -hmm. what's what's the likelihood that that's a good? It, I mean, it depends on on the uh, variations with something like this. That's a cold case. You know, there's there's a lot of factors that are involved with that. Um, so. Uh, they might they might smell something, but we can't necessarily say unless we see like oh there's something right there. You know to say definitively like yes there is something there, but the dog is showing potentially some sort of you know, change in body behavior, or something to indicate like oh that's a little different. Mm -hmm. So the news is the news for a reason. Vicky Barone talked about it in our interview, and I know it as well as anyone else who's ever done a stint in the newsroom. It's difficult, Vicky said, when there's no new information to report, to get an editor to budget even a slim 20 column inches to the same story over again. And I mean, you know, fair point, editors. But as Vicky said, she kept the anniversary stories going, and Jude, of course, supported that. I felt it was important to keep the story alive, as did all of us, including editors, both as a remembrance and in the hope that somehow something new might be brought to light. Vicky wrote to me in a text this morning before I started writing this episode. I can't argue with that. Otherwise, what the hell am I doing right now? But in my opinion, the media did what it could with the information it got, but at the end of the day, the news is the news, and if there was no new information, and if trying to untangle a viper's nest of rumor was all anyone could do to generate more information, it's no wonder at all that there wasn't more said in the paper. Traditional journalism is great. We need traditional journalism. Daily stories are a needed part of society, and 
print newspapers are such an aesthetically pleasing experience on all levels. But they can't possibly take on a story with as many variants as Damien's, especially not 20 years ago when, as I've been told by numerous law enforcement agencies across multiple jurisdictions, I would not have gotten the time of day from the police department's administrative assistant on this project, let alone the chief. I can't tell you how pleased I am to be all grown up and trying to scooby-doo this thing into the ground today, because I know damn well they're right. And to round out this chapter, I just want to tell you that I will never stop combing this county. I'm already infected. I'm already so far down the rabbit hole that there is no coming back. So we didn't find anything Sunday. And rather than deflate me, which I know is going to happen, but lucky for everyone, I'm brand new to the obsession. So I've got a lot of years left before I get crusty. That only puts me three levels above max on hold my beer mode. So sorry, guys. Case is stuck with me. Brian had to be out of town to cover some things this weekend and wasn't able to record his final thoughts on the media for this episode. So please enjoy my impression of Brian's voice as I read what he sent me to deliver. I'm just kidding. Here we go. In All the President's Men, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward wrote what is essentially the quintessential issue with media and stories that require true investigative journalism. Quoting the book, the reporters understood Bradley's philosophy. A daily newspaper can't wait for the definitive account of events. Can't wait for the definitive account. There are papers to sell and byline quotas to meet, after all. Admittedly, it's a callous approach, but also a necessary one in many instances. If, as a publisher, editor, or reporter, you wait for the definitive account of events, your competitors are drawing readers, viewers, and listeners away from your product with up-to-the-minute updates of events as they unfold. It's an unfortunate aspect of the media industry that we sincerely hope will change. The need to be first far outweighs the emphasis on accuracy and has thus created an untrusting and conspiracy-minded society. People have lost trust in mainstream media because there are often so many inaccuracies in early reporting, especially of breaking events, it's hard to believe the fifth version. Those inaccuracies also often lead to conspiracy theories because even when a correction or explanation of the inaccuracy is given, it's buried in the story. For example, the belief that there was a second shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary in 2012 persists in large part because there was an extended period that day with coverage dedicated to, quote, police are searching for the second shooter, end quote. You may be wondering what all of this has to do with Damien's case. In many ways, it doesn't, but in the most important ways, it has everything to do with Damien's case. Local media in Warren County in 2002 was essentially one newspaper and a couple of radio stations. The radio stations relied heavily on the newspaper for news content. That is, they didn't have reporters out there gathering stories to run on the air. What does that mean? Well, it means there shouldn't have been any fear about being scooped when it came to news about Damien. Hell, if you were to go to the websites for the media outlets surrounding Warren County and search for Damien's name, you would get all of two relevant results. I know because I just did it, both appearing in the Titusville Herald. One was a brief about Warren County Crime Stoppers offering a $2,000 reward, which still stands, and another outlining where the case stood on the 10th anniversary of his disappearance. This is not to say that every media outlet in a 50-mile radius of Warren County should have run daily stories about Damien for 20 years, but it shows the fickle nature of not just the media, but our society as well. The average lifespan of a story is incredibly small, in part because it's hard to continue writing about something if there isn't any new information to share. 
but also in part because people stop caring. Typically, the third or fourth story about the same event will have 15-20% to of the readers as the original story. Is the third story any less important? Not likely, but people tend to tire of hearing and reading the same things in a short span, and will simply turn their attention elsewhere. How many stories could Vicki Barone have written about Damien's case? Only she can answer that question with any certainty, but it does draw out another point regarding media coverage of Damien. As one of just a handful of reporters, I don't know for sure what the number was in 2002, but I can say that in my first stint with the TO in 2010, there were four dedicated news reporters. When I returned in 2017, it was down to three, and it currently stands at two. Even if she wanted to do more, how much time did Barone have to dedicate to Damien's case? Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacey Gross. Executive producers are Stacey Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. A very special thanks to the Northwest Pennsylvania Canine Search and Rescue. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It helps us out a ton. <laughs>